So this evening, I want to talk about one of my favorite Dharma topics. Uh, and that's the, that's the theme of equanimity, cultivating equanimity or balance. So crucial at this time when we have these multiple crises, how do we keep balance in our being, in our minds and hearts and bodies with the different challenges, you know, that uh, can be challenges, uh, just uh, the obvious ones of uh, the job not being there in the same way, or other economic issues, or housing, or uh, interpersonal issues that, that come up with the added stress of the times or related maybe to the election. So this quality of equanimity is so, so crucial. So that's what I want to explore with the aim of inquiring into the, what's the nature of equanimity. And then how do we cultivate it? How do we practice? How do we develop it further? And in the tradition, actually related to that question of awakening, uh, equanimity is sometimes seen as quite close to awakening in multiple ways. I'll, I'll bring out that point a little bit later. So I wanted to start with two expressions of equanimity. One of them I'll show in a video right now. This is from the last speech that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave. Many of you probably know this. This is the one he gave the night before he was assassinated in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, April 3rd, 1968. And I find this to be a remarkable expression of equanimity. So let me play this now. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. 
We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight. That we as a people will get to the promised land. you have to be, why not go to school where remote learning can be as remote as you want? Like a Verbo. Hey, I'm here. So these are some plants I found hiking. Some wildflowers. Here we have a So, uh, that first one from that last evening of the life of Dr. King. And the second quotation is from the Buddha. Another quotation that I think uh, gives a sense of equanimity. This is from the Dhammapada. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. So this quality of equanimity I think is found in some of the most beloved of beings that have walked on the earth. It's a quality that manifests wisdom, but also a quality of heart and a kind of, kind of radiance. It's especially connected with a sense of balance in the midst of whatever arises. It's not about denying what's arising or being aloof from what's arising, but being able to be with what arises with balance. So it's very, very clearly a fruit of practice. You know, as I'll explore, a lot of the way equanimity develops is actually learning how to be with what's challenging or difficult and becoming more balanced with fear, anxiety, maybe physical challenges, uh, becoming familiar 
with repetitive negative narratives and so forth. And getting familiar with all of these to the point that even if they're happening, someone can keep balance. In fact, the term, the main term that's translated as equanimity is upekka, which is really about a kind of balance. It means looking over, literally upekka means looking over without being caught by what we see. And sometimes in the uh, ordinary language of the time, it meant to be able to see with patience, to see with understanding, without reactivity. So it's this quality of balance is so crucial. There's a beautiful essay, which um, in part is about equanimity, uh, called The Four Sublime States by uh, the German monk, Nyanaponikatera. Some of you may know him. He wrote the book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And here's a beautiful essay, which you can find on Access to Insight, called The Four Sublime States, about loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And he says, equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind, rooted in insight. So it's a balance, and it's connected with wisdom. And as we'll see, it's also very much connected with the heart. It's found very centrally in many of the teachings of the Buddha. And one of the interesting things in is it's connected with what I mentioned earlier, that equanimity is actually close to awakening. It's the last quality mentioned in all the lists in which it appears. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening. It's the last of the four qualities of the awakened heart called the Brahma Vihara, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's the last of the virtues called the paramis. There are 10 of those, it's the last of them. Tina may talk about this in the coming weeks. It's also related to the last of the deep states of concentration. And in some of the models of the stages of awakening, it's one of the last stages before awakening occurs. And so it's really practiced in two main ways. One way is that we practice it through our mindfulness and our insight practice. And that's where we learn more and more to be balanced with whatever comes up and increasingly by having gone through difficult experiences where we get unbalanced, but we learn from them. So this is, this is the secret of our practice, right? We have difficult experiences, we get off track, but we keep the intention to keep learning. That's so crucial. Have, we have difficult experiences but we don't say, oh, my practice isn't working. We say, no, I keep the attitude of learning. The intention to learn, the intention to, to work with things. And I, I think I've particularly loved exploring the quality of equanimity, um, in part from the example of my father, 
who I think manifested a tremendous amount of equanimity and balance. And I've thought about this for many years. His name was Simon. He died about 15 years ago. And he had a, in some ways, a, a challenging life. He um, enlisted in the, uh, what was then called the Army Air Force when he was 18 years old. And it was two years before World War II began. So he was actually in the service for six years. He was in active duty. He had many of his friends uh, died. In fact, I was told that I was named Donald because that was the name of one of his close friends who actually died in the war. After the war, he was able to go to school and he wanted to go to medical school, but he wasn't permitted to go because at that time, this was in the late 1940s, there were quotas at medical schools for people of Jewish background. So he was not able to go. Those quotas existed in schools up, and through, up until the early 1960s. He also, uh, from a pretty young age, had psoriasis, scales all over his body. He seemed pretty balanced with that when he went to the swimming pool. He, starting when he was probably in his late 40s, he uh, started going blind. And he was pretty much blind by the time he was 50 years old, probably from badly supervised experiments uh, from the government, but he was not bitter about that. He stayed balanced. He also had um, the last 27 years of his life, he had cancer. And so, but nonetheless, there was a kind of balance, non-complaining, um, really qualities that were very inspiring to me. You know, qualities of love came through uh, despite all those challenges. So in a way, I'm, I'm dedicating the talk to my father. <clears throat> so I wanted to name, I want to name a few qualities of equanimity. And uh, as we do that, we'll, we'll get a sense of how to practice. And I'll name some of those ways to practice along the way. And so the first quality is this, set, this sense of balance. It's being able to stay with what comes up. And it's really important right here to say that equanimity is not the same thing as tranquility. It doesn't mean nothing's happening. It means that there can be a tremendous amount happening that's quite challenging or difficult. Equanimity means we stay balanced with it. We can be with what's happening without being reactive, without manifesting what I talked about, uh, I think the last time I was with everyone, without manifesting reactivity or shooting the second arrow. In other words, reacting to what's difficult or unpleasant. And again, we learn, we learn this balance by experiencing imbalance with the difficult states. You know, I think of my own practice, a lot of my learning came from having periods in which there was fear or anger or self-judgment or sadness or grief and getting familiar enough 
with these qualities, with these states, so that uh, they were there. But I could work with them without reactivity, maybe without added commentary. And so the way we learn equanimity is by just being open to the whole range of human experience. It's partly what we do in our sittings, partly what we do in just the flow of our daily life. And so we can take, uh, one way we can really give ourselves kind of pep talk is to uh, say with every difficult experience, oh, a chance to learn equanimity. Uh-huh. How's that sound? Right? A chance to learn equanimity, right? Or I still have something to learn about equanimity. So uh, I'm joking some, but I'm actually very serious. We can do that with these challenging experience, challenging experiences. And so that's a core way, you know, again, whether it's in our sitting or in our in our daily life flow. A second quality of equanimity is a kind of evenness. We you know, this happens, that happens, and I'm kind of even with what comes up. You know, that, uh, you know, I experience some fear. Okay, fear is here. Okay, I have joy. Okay, joy is here. That's the quality of equanimity. You know, uh, some of us maybe have seen or studied with a Chan Semedo. Uh, the American-born uh, monk who's in his probably late 70s now, I guess. And I know, uh, Anna, you've studied with him a lot, and maybe others as well. And he has a nice phrase, which is really an equanimity phrase. When something is happening, he just says, oh, it's like this. And he holds his hand out. It's like this. Okay. Fear. Okay. It's like this. That's fear. Okay. Anger. Okay. Anger. Okay. Right. Uh, Moment of depression, okay. Anxiety, okay. It's like this. So that's the, that's the spirit of it. Um, some of the expressions that I like of this evenness, one of them comes from uh, uh, Basho, the Japanese haiku writer, and uh, who lived in the uh, 17th century. Here's a haiku uh, expressing, I believe, equanimity. And remember, haikus are short, like 17 syllables. So this, this haiku is going to come and go quickly. Okay, ready? Here it is. Fleas, lice. The horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. Okay, why is that an equanimity haiku? Anyone want to say? Can raise your hand if you'd like to. Any any sense? Why is that an equanimity haiku? Okay, please. Is that uh, Laurie? Yeah. He's just noticing what is and naming it. That's right. Yeah. He's not yeah. saying, yeah, he's just noticing what is, naming it, without saying, the horse pissing near my pillow. I have to remember next time. <laughs> right? Or whatever. You know, um, so that's how it is. Yeah, that's how it is. This this is how it is. Much like that phrase from uh, Achan Sumedho. Uh, another quality 
of equanimity is a kind of unshakability as equanimity gets mature. Or if we get shaken, we don't get shaken for long. Right? There's that sense that we can be with things. And one of the teachings that is, I think, really connect with unshakability that we can uh, work with. One of the main ways we can practice equanimity is to work with a teaching called the Eight Worldly Winds or the Eight Worldly Conditions. How many of you know that teaching? Yeah. It's, it's really a pointing out of some of the ways we lose balance. So you can, we can work with this teaching in daily life and say, I'm going to look out for these qualities arising. And there are four sets of two qualities. We could actually work with two of them a week over four weeks, one way of practicing equanimity. And the qualities are pleasure and pain. You know, when there's something pleasant, we'll tend to get a little bit off balance reaching for it. Something unpleasant or painful will tend to push it away, get a little bit off balance. The second set is gain and loss. Those tend to knock us off balance. The third is, uh, third set is fame and disrepute, sort of our reputation, how we appear to others, those can knock us around. And then the last is praise and blame, which may be certainly one of the most powerful. How many of us get knocked around by blame? Anyone raise your hand? That happened? It's pretty strong for most of us, right? And so this is a wonderful way to uh, actually practice with equanimity. Look for any of those eight worldly conditions. Very relevant now. Look for uh, significant levels of pleasant or unpleasant experiences, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. When they come up, know that they're aspects of experience which will tend to knock us off balance. And so we can practice with them. And, you know, one of my favorite stories about, about this comes from a, an old friend who was really my, uh, probably my first real mentor when I was starting to teach, which, which I, I started to do some meditation teaching when I was pretty young still in my uh, late 20s. And my mentor was a guy named Larry Rosenberg. Does anyone know Larry's work? Yeah, he's uh, founded the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in uh, Massachusetts in the 1980s. And he, uh, he was a great mentor to me. We used to hang out and he used to really help. And he told me a wonderful story that helped him about uh, how he learned equanimity by ceasing to pay so much attention to what other people thought of him. And this was the experience. It was, it's really, it's a great story. He was, uh, before he went into insight meditation, he was practicing Zen. And he was living at the Cambridge Zen Center in Massachusetts. And he was scheduled to teach a, like a five-day Zen retreat uh, which was, was going to start right after Christmas. Uh, this was in the 1970s. And he um, noticed, you know, like a day or two before it was supposed to begin, almost everyone had left the Zen Center to, you know, most people were uh, 
going to visit their families. He was the only one there, and no one had signed up for the retreat. So I went to the Zen teacher, uh, Sun Sanim, and he said, I guess we canceled the retreat, huh? And the Zen teacher said, no. I want you to teach the retreat. And I want you to be present at all the sittings. I want you to do all the bowing. And I want you to give all the Dharma talks for the five days. And Larry said he couldn't believe it, but he said he'd try it. And the first day he said he felt really, really stupid. He was just there. No one else was there. He was going through the whole routine of the retreat, giving the talks. He said after the five days, he learned an incredible lesson, he said. And after that, he said um, he just wasn't interested in some ways in what people thought. You know, as a teacher, sometimes we have experiences, you know, teaching a retreat. How many people came to the retreat? Oh, yeah, it was a full retreat. We had 80, 90 people. Oh, yeah, great retreat. How many people came to the retreat? Seven. Ah, oh, not so many people came. Oh, right, and so um, the mind can go places, right? Larry said that did not happen after this experience. There was some learning, we might say, about uh, freedom from praise and blame, you know, among other things. So maybe we've had experiences like that, where we learn something about that, that sense of balance. You know, another, maybe a, a fourth quality of equanimity is that it brings in the wisdom factor. There's understanding and wisdom. Uh, we may have a set of causes and conditions. You know, so if we have equanimity, we might have a, let's say, uh, an interpersonal difficulty. I was talking with someone today who was talking about challenges uh, with his father and when we look closely, we could see that it's likely that some of the challenges were family patterns that went back generations, maybe even involving trauma, right? And we can, you know, when we have equanimity, sometimes we can have the big picture and see the patterns. I know that's been helpful for me sometimes in interpersonal difficulties, just to contemplate the vast web of causes and conditions. Or I think of uh, Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka, who was instrumental in helping to stop the civil war. And he said, we, in approaching this situation, need to have a 500-year plan because the problems were 500 years in the making with colonialism and so forth and you know, ethnic tensions with the Tamils and so forth. And so he had that long view that really, uh, that perspective of look, looking uh, at the sets of causes and conditions, having the long view. I know the poet Gary Snyder says, when you approach issues, take the 4,000 year view, right? Not easy to do, but can we, can we have that sense of seeing causes and conditions for maybe what's difficult or challenging, having, having that sense. 
You know, and it also can start to bring in the element of compassion that when we really understand the causes and conditions, maybe we don't blame ourselves or blame the other so much. You know, that there's, I think there's a, a quote some of you may know from the poet Longfellow. He said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility, right? So equanimity uh, starts to open the heart. You know, when we see, you know, that the wis- that's where wisdom in its mature state is connected with compassion. There can also be a sense of faith, a sense that we rest in a kind of confidence in the unfolding of our minds and hearts and bodies and of life, that we can be with what's uh, difficult and challenging. You know, that um, there's more confidence that we can have. You know, and I'm thinking of uh, there's a powerful experience where um, uh, also with Dr. King, where one one evening after he he came home late like at midnight and his family was asleep and he got a call and he answered the phone and someone used the n-word and said if you're not out of town in a few days um we're gonna bomb your house and he said he had been with those sorts of threats before but something at that time he was very vulnerable and he said he actually thought that maybe he should just give up. And he sat and he talked about sitting around his kitchen table and he poured himself a cup of coffee. You know, I don't know if that was totally wise in terms of getting asleep, but that's what he did. Anyway, um, but he uh, poured a cup of coffee and he sat around the set of coffee, the cup of coffee, and he thought of leaving, and he thought of going back to uh, Atlanta. And he said he realized he couldn't uh, call his parents. You know, he was in his uh, 20s then. He couldn't call his parents. He couldn't really do anything, so he started to pray. And he prayed deeply, and he said, "I, I think I'm doing the right thing but I have to confess I'm feeling weak. I'm losing my courage. I'm ready to leave. To, uh, to leave. And he said that he thought he heard the words of uh, Jesus speaking, saying, uh, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice and I will be with you. You will never be alone. And something landed with him. Actually, what happened was a few days later, uh, his house was bombed. No one was hurt, but his house was bombed. And um, I don't know if there are videos of this, but at the press conference, uh, people were amazed by the level of balance and equanimity that he had. 
And he said that it, it actually came out of that experience which deepened his faith. So there is, a, there is a quality of faith. And there's a quality also of, there can be a quality of warmth and connection. You know, when we practice equanimity, as a heart practice, we learn that the uh, occupational hazard of developing equanimity is that we lose connection with the heart. It can become a little bit aloof. We can become a little maybe overly intellectual. I'm really balanced. I'm, you know, uh, see things from the hill or whatever. And that's the kind of the danger of equanimity practice that will be a little bit aloof. And so the quality of coming into the heart is really, really crucial. And mature equanimity will have that quality of warmth and kindness and compassion. And actually one of the beautiful and subtle teachings of the heart practices is that of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, for any of them to be mature, they have to include the other three. So mature equanimity is going to have qualities of love, of compassion, and of joy. And it's going to turn up in equanimity. And the last quality I want to name is that equanimity is related to what I just said, uh, connected with action. Equanimity is responsive. Again, if it would integrate compassion, it would be responsive. That it's actually... Um, leads to responding to what's there. It's not just separate or not just apart from everything, but that there's, there's a sense of really being able to uh, respond to what's there. Let me see. Yeah, let me see where my, my notes went. Yeah, so as we, as we develop more equanimity, we want to look out for that danger of it sliding into indifference or complacency or a sense of, uh, of separateness. But rather, it's uh, a quality uh, that is found, I think, in the most, some of the most profound uh, spiritual activists throughout history. You know, and I, w I was reflecting that um, for that book that Anna showed, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I actually interviewed about 15 sort of spiritually grounded activists. And I found that for so many of them, equanimity was right at the center, as we, as we saw with that video clip from Dr. King. Um, this is a, this is a, I interviewed Dr. Ari Ratni from Sri Lanka, and this is what he said. When I do something with good intentions and I quote-unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but for me it is not a failure because that so-called failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment or renunciation. In learning to accept failure, in a sense, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason, which is always beneficial to me. Isn't that amazing? 
to think of having that spirit in your practice. Every experience I have, another way to say it, is potentially a learning experience. Every experience is potentially a learning experience, a chance to be more balanced. I try to be as balanced as I can with it, but even if I'm knocked off balance, I can have equanimity about being knocked off balance. I can have equanimity about non-equanimity, in other words, because I have that general attitude of wanting to learn and incorporating everything into learning. So that helps me to be with difficult conditions and to uh, really to work with what comes up and uh, both see the causes and conditions of everything, but also see how I can respond skillfully out of wisdom and compassion. You know, I, th I thought of, the, this really a, can be a paradoxical quality. I see everything happening according to causes and conditions, have that wisdom aspect, but there's still response. There's still compassionate response. The poet Gary Snyder said, knowing that nothing needs to be done is where we start, where we uh, begin to move from. Suzuki Roshi said, things are perfect as they are. They could also use some improvement. Okay, so that's my, that's my closing word on equanimity. Uh, and so you can see how we practice, that we practice by cultivating mindfulness, particularly with challenging situations, but, we, but even with beautiful ones, because we may find it hard to be balanced when they're wonderful experiences. We may get overly excited or whatever. So we keep this sense of learning to stay balanced. And we, again, learn especially by being with situations that knock us off balance some. We also can practice equanimity by focusing on the uh, eight worldly winds, the eight worldly conditions. Look out for pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Look out for those when they come by. If we work with those, we'll be developing equanimity. And then lastly, we want to make sure that the equanimity has a strong element of the heart. Sometimes we talk about equanimity and that heart quality as being like the wise grandmother who has seen everything, is not knocked off by anything, but still deeply cares. Has that sense of balance plus caring. So we want to, when we're practicing to cultivate equanimity, we want to look out to make sure that we have that heart quality because there are dangers of it being a little more aloof, indifferent, overly intellectual, whatever. Okay, so that's my, that's my uh, offering on equanimity. And then we want to have the rest of the time be discussion. I'm going to do this in two segments. The first is going to be a breakout group with three people. We'll do it for I think, uh, Terry, we can, once we get in the groups, we'll have nine minutes, okay? Uh, let's say 10 minutes, and we'll be in groups of three, and the, uh, I'll give two prompts, maybe reflect right now, 
Here are the two prompts. The first is, for you, what are some of the challenges that you experience in staying balanced? That's number one. What are some of the challenges for you in staying balanced? And then secondly, what helps you to cultivate balance and equanimity? This is basically what are the challenges and what helps, okay? And so we'll go to the groups. Maybe you just have each person has two or three minutes to talk about that. Why don't we reflect right now just on that, uh, on those uh, questions? Okay, let's go to the groups now, Terry. Okay, I have some people who actually have left. Is it better to have one group with just two people in or a four people? I think uh, two. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.